Nehemiah will teach you how to work for a difficult boss, and maybe you have one of those, and how to balance faith with understanding in terms of personal planning. How much of it is faith, and, and how much should I do? You've probably heard people just say, well, I'm just going to trust the Lord, which is code word for I'm not going to do anything, right? Or I'm just going to wait upon the Lord. We had a guy come in, he wanted some help with a rent. I said, have you been looking for a job? And he said, no, I'm just waiting on the Lord. So I said, well, go home and wait on the Lord for that money. You've got to be able to step out, right? You've got to be able to move out. How much? And where's the balance between those things? I think Nehemiah will teach you that. How to face extremely difficult situations, almost impossible ones. How to pray and not get answers. Have you had that before? Pray and not get an answer? Or is that just me? How to stand up under undue or undeserved criticism. It all comes your way as you're serving the Lord. So it's a wonderful book. And I hope that if we go through the first chapter tonight, that you'll be encouraged to go home and read through it on your own. Because if you want to know about vision and God's power, and me personally, I think that the church is in a great position today. We are living in a nutty world, aren't we? I mean, it is as dark as it's ever been, it seems. And we get to run around and be lights in dark places. I mean, God's got people right where he wants them, doesn't he? In total despair. And then the church is going to come on and say, hey, I got an answer for you. So that's Nehemiah. And, and I, I love the book. Very encouraging. He's a, he's a strong believer. He's a brave guy. He's a doer of the word. And I'll tell you what Nehemiah will teach you as well. I'm drifting, but it's okay. We'll drift back. <laughs> Nehemiah will teach you that more often than not, when God speaks to you, it's very uneventful. You know, I like the fact that a couple of times in my life as a pastor, and I've been pastoring 40 years now, there have been times when I, 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 I almost, I didn't ever completely hear God out loud, but I, it was about as close as I've ever got. Like, I just knew this was what God wanted. But more often than not, it's steps of faith, isn't it? I believe God's called me. I want to move in the right direction. I'm, I'm leaning in that way. I'm hoping God will kind of encourage me as I go. And it's a great book, if you will, on learning how uneventfully God works. He works without much fanfare usually. You know, his, his work is seen by those looking for him. Someone sitting next to you who's not looking for him may miss exactly what God has shown to you. I always think about, uh, you know, Elijah on the run from Jezebel, and he wore himself out running away. And he, he was sure that when he had an audience with God, and the, that God would speak through the thunder and through the lightning. And you remember him hiding in the cave in the middle of nowhere. And he said the Lord's voice wasn't in any of that stuff. It was in that still, small voice. And, and Nehemiah is a pretty good example of how God speaks to you in ways that you can hear him. Maybe you remember um, Elijah's servant Gehazi when he was surrounded one night by the Syrian army there. I think it's in 1 Kings 19. And he had, he had a little guy with him, a servant that was with him. And, and Gehazi, Elijah's servant, just, you know, he was terrified when he saw these army people. And Elijah was asleep and he woke him up. He said, we're surrounded, we're dead. And Elijah just kind of smiled. Might have giggled, I don't know. But he said, Lord, just show him what, what, what he doesn't see. And God opened his eyes, and there surrounding the Syrians were God's angels. And, and Elijah was able to say to go, hey, I just go to sleep, man. Nehemiah is a great book on leadership. You know, if leadership is influence, then all you have to do is look over your shoulder. Who's following you? Or who are you influencing? I mean, church is more than you coming and sitting, getting fed and fat and going, Right? It's about you getting fed and fat and going out to serve. We're not, no, I don't know what other of you are called to do, but I know what you're not called to do, to sit there. Pretty sure of that. Pretty sure none of you have the calling of sitting. The sitting ministry is not available. 
And, and I've always thought, you know, if, if that's what you believe God has called you to do is to sit, you should just get baptized and never come up out of the water. Just hold you down until you go meet Jesus because you're finished. God has a plan. And chapter 1, like I said, I'd like to take you through the whole book, but chapter 1 is a great book about calling and what God wants you to do. Nehemiah will find a young man on his knees. God will give him a vision. In just a few chapters, he'll have a whole nation following the direction that God gave to him. Wouldn't you like to be a person like that, that you by yourself could change a, a job place, a school classroom, a a family, a neighborhood. I believe God would want that for you. You know, the Bible says we haven't come up with what God has planned. (laughs) We we can't really see fully what God has in store for us. And I think that most of us come up short from what God would want. So it's a great book. Let me tell you the background of the book, just so you don't feel like we plopped here in the middle of our Bible somewhere. In 931 B.C., Solomon died. And his boy Rehoboam, who was kind of a young punk and thought that, you know, now I can take over my dad's kingdom, got a bunch of his young punks together and said, you know, what are we going to do as a policy? And and none of them had ruled before, but they were all happy with, with power. And they decided that even though their dad, Solomon, had taxed the people to death because he was such a builder, that they would lay even more heavy burdens on the people. And the people went nuts. They went crazy. And though Rehoboam made that decision with his pals, 10 of the 12 tribes in Israel, in Jerusalem, where God had put his name and had said to them, here's the only place you worship where I put my name, they bailed out and went north. Right? And the kingdom divided in 931 B.C. And if you read through Kings and Chronicles, that northern kingdom is called Israel during that time. Right? Only Benjamin and Judah stayed in Jerusalem where God had put his name. They they, they stayed where the Lord wanted them, and they were called Judah during that time of, of, of separation, if you will. And you have to be careful when you read Kings and Chronicles because you want to be sure Israel, northern kingdom, Judah, southern kingdom. A couple of times they have kings with the same name. They're different people. So you've got to kind of read carefully. Well, because they went north, they, they set up in Bethel and Dan places of worship and cows like they worshiped in Egypt and all. And they never had a good king. God didn't send them there. They lowered the... The, the standards for the priests, they changed the priest, the, the, the holidays of, of the nation, the religious holidays. They basically just messed the whole thing up. God didn't bless it. They were out there away from God and doing their own thing, angry, and yet, you know, driven politically, but dead spiritually, if you will. And, and for 209 years, they existed without a good king. Kings came and went, not a good one among them. God sent them prophets, warned them about the Assyrians coming, finally said to them, they're going to take you out. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians took out the northern kingdom. There was no promise to be reconstituted. There was no promise from God that they would ever survive it. If they wanted to have a life as a Jew, they had to go back to Jerusalem. They were Many died. It was horrible. Meanwhile, in the south, which also began in 931, there were eight good kings over a period of time, kings that turned the hearts of the people back to the Lord. But yet their, their bane was what it was in the north, idolatry, you know, embracing the, the religion of those around them. And, and God warned them. You, you can read through the prophets. They all fit into that time frame of, of warning. Uh, Jeremiah for a long time said to the people, you know, the Lord said, if you'll just repent, then you'll not be taken into captivity, but be careful. And the people went, yeah, that's not going to happen. And finally, the, Jeremiah's message changed from, 
You're not going to be taken into captivity to you better surrender or you'll die. The captivity is no longer an option. That's now a mandate. And then people still rebelled. And you, ha- you know how the story went. Well, in 606 B.C., or if you will, 325 years after the split, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian world empire king, sent some army soldiers into Jerusalem because the, the guy they had put there to be king wasn't really paying up like he should. And they took from Jerusalem all of the kids who grew up in wealthy homes, refined kids. Daniel was one of them. And they took them back to Babylon, 700 miles away, to prepare to take all of these people out. He came back again in in 597 and and had war, and and tons of folks died. And and again, the Lord was telling them, just give up, surrender, you can live. Um, But he was making them a promise that they would, for 70 years, be in captivity, and then they would come back, but they'd come back having learned one lesson, no longer idolatry. In in 586, or 20 years after the first invasion, 50 years left, if you will, of the captivity, Nebuchadnezzar's troops came in and they just leveled the city. They stole everything out of the tabernacle and the temple. They stole the gold. They broke down the walls. I mean, the place was just left a shambles. And everyone gets taken away. The book of Ezra, which is right before this book of Nehemiah, tells us about how they came back in 536 B.C., 70 years after they had begun to be taken out of the southern kingdom. And we are told that there was a fight, and actually two years earlier, 538, between the Babylonians and a new upstart bunch of people, the Medo-Persian Empire. And as God would have it, the Medo-Persians in 18 months defeated the Babylonians. They became the rulers of the world, right? And a guy came to the throne named Cyrus, the king. 150 years before he was born, Isaiah chapter 41 had mentioned him by name as being the king through whom God would set the people back. And King Cyrus came to the throne in 536, said to the people, go home. Get out of here. Take a hike. And 50,000 people took him up on it. They went back, 50,000, out of millions, 50,000 only went, yeah, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. It laid in waste. The enemies are overrunning. It's a dangerous place. You know, they got the gangsters all over the place. <laughs> We're not going. 50,000 people went, but the rest went, well, we love Babylon. It's, 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 it's progressive, you know. We got, we got paved streets. We got good food. They settled into the world. 50,000 pilgrims went back. And in 536, they returned. They, they started to lay the foundation of the temple, which was important because, remember, God had said that he'd only be worshipped in one place, that place of, of worship, the temple. That's where he would put his, his presence. They quickly laid the foundation of the temple before the work was stopped. And rather than continuing in 536, the people started saying, well, you know, we can wait on this. I've got to build my own house over here. And for the next many years, actually 16 years, no work got done on the temple. It had foundation for it. That was it. People were building their own homes. You know, they're making them beautiful. <laughs> and in 520 B.C., 16 years later, God sent the prophet Haggai. It's right there in your Bible. And the book of Zechariah as well. And they came and they, they, they laid into the people. Haggai said, you know why there's been no rain and you guys are going broke? Because you've decided to take care of yourself and not take care of the house of God. How dare you? <laughs> and the people went, oh, you're right. We were ridiculous. Went back to work. Four years later, the temple was built and the worship began. That covers Ezra chapters 1 through 6. In Ezra chapter 7, Ezra jumps ahead 59 years. It is where the book of Esther is found in between, if you will. But in 457 B.C., 79 years after the first group, Ezra, the guy who wrote the book, brought with him 
2,000 priests and worship leaders back to Jerusalem. So he shows up to, to, to undergird the spiritual growth and the continuing spiritual growth of this new group of folks that have found themselves in Jerusalem. Which brings us to Nehemiah. See, it didn't take that long to get here, did it? This is your five-minute Bible version. Um, Nehemiah shows up 12 years later in 445 B.C. Or actually, the 446, but we'll, we'll just put it at 445. 12 years after Ezra, 91 years after Company A. And understand, in Jerusalem, there is still absolutely no walls built, no protection. Oh, they have a, a place of worship now. They've got some priests who are facilitating sacrifice and fellowship with God. But the city is just in the tank. You know, it is a laughingstock. It is a place of, of great danger and difficulty And God would use this fellow Nehemiah to rectify it. But Nehemiah doesn't really know that yet. We just know that from reading the book. All right, let's go to verse 1. This is what it says. The words of Nehemiah, who's the son of Hakali, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan in the citadel. The word Nehemiah means God or Jehovah comforts us. His father's name, Hakali, means whom the Lord enlightens. Now, it's important because it seems that Nehemiah may grow up or may have grown up in a family that was a tremendously godly family, but in a country that was as ungodly as they could be. Idolatrous, you know, the Medo-Persians were an idolatrous people. Verse 2 set, or verse 1 sets the time, though. It was the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, the second, in the month of Chislev. Chislev is the ninth month, ninth month in the Jewish calendar, um, it equates to November or December. It was winter time, if you will. It was 446 B.C. at the time. Nehemiah was living in Shushan. The Hebrew word is Susa. The city of Susa is in the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iran. And Nehemiah was there, we read in verse 11, as the king's food taster. Okay, so I want you to get a hold of Nehemiah here. We've done the history getting us to this point. Nehemiah has not, never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah lives 700 miles away. Nehemiah may have godly parents, but Nehemiah really doesn't know what else to do. He works in a secular job. He's pretty well locked in. <laughs> the king likes him. He's not letting him go. He lives in a, in a, in a, in a government that, that is absolutely run by one guy. And, and now God begins to work in his life, which is why we're interested to see how the Lord brought him, if you will, to this place. We are told in verse 2 that one of his brethren's name was Hanani, came with men from Jerusalem, from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity, and how is Jerusalem doing? And he said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province, they are in great distress and great reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem has been broken down, and the gates have been burned with fire. One of my brethren, we read in verse 2, in chapter 7 you'll read that it sounds like it was probably one of his actual brothers. But, but what I want you to see is, here, here's lesson number one in determining the will of God, or for you, the calling of God. God's work always begins in the heart of an individual. Because as we read here for the next couple of verses, we're going to discover that Nehemiah took great concern for a city he had never seen, for people he probably had never met, and for a situation that was absolutely out of his reach. How are, the, how are the people? How is Jerusalem? I, he'll weep, he'll cry, he'll fast, he'll pray. He'll be really concerned for a place that God began in his heart. 
Look, if you want to know what God wants to do with your life, know this. You're going to have to hear from God what he wants you to do first. It has to begin in the heart of an individual first. When Paul wrote to Timothy about the ministry, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, he said, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. And and that word desires is a pretty strong Greek word. It it literally means he he can't think of anything else. There's nothing more important to him than this work. And I can tell you, and and maybe you know, you don't want to be a pastor, maybe. I don't be in the ministry like that. Well, I don't blame you. But I wanted to do nothing else. And, and, And calling is not something you can teach. You know, once you're called, I can help you in a lot of things. I've learned a lot of things over the years. You can help me in a lot of things. But I can't teach calling. I I don't know how to tell you what God wants you to do. I just know that he wants you to do something. And the way that you begin is you begin to find out what what is God stirring your heart about? What is God doing in your heart? When, When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about preaching the gospel, he said, I really can't boast about it because necessity has been laid upon me. Woe is me if I don't. It, it was that driving interest that, that, that drove him. And, and I want you to notice that Nehemiah, the book begins with him showing a tremendous concern for a place that God alone could have stirred his heart. I'll give you an example. There are times at our church, and the church is large, but, but people will call and, and they will try to get me on the phone or maybe one of the other pastors, and they don't really want advice. They want to tell us what we should be doing. And they'll say, you know, I was praying, bro, and... I thought I'd call you and let you know, I think, you know what the church needs, and then they'll give you something. And then they want to hang up, like I've done my job. I've told them what the Lord wants them to do. Well, that doesn't work biblically, does it? Not if we read the Bible correctly. So I've taken to doing this. What do you think the Lord wants us to do? And they'll go, oh, and they'll lay it out. And I go, is that important? Oh, Pastor, it is so vital. And you care about it. Oh, I certainly do. So I'd say this. Well, then get to work on it. And I hang up the phone. And now I do like this. Because I'm not burdened for that. They are. And, and God uses all of us, every part of our body. So I'm not at all ashamed that they're burdened for it. But I also don't feel the compunction to go, man, I better get on that right away, you know. Nehemiah's ministry began with, with a concern that God had stirred his heart about. And it's a good thing that, that we're not all called to the same thing. We have a bunch of worship leaders up here tonight. It would be horrible if all of you were worship leaders. You might all fit up here, maybe if we squeezed in tight. But who'd be singing? Who would we be leading? It's a good thing we're all called to something else, isn't it? That we're not all, always leaning, if you will, in the same direction. The report from Hannah and I was, was discouraging. 161 years had passed, and Jerusalem still didn't have a wall. And if you know anything about Old Testament times, you don't have a wall, you're dead, right? It's like not locking your doors. It's not being, you've got no protection. You're a sitting duck. And there were vagabond, you know, nations that ran around under the auspices of, of if you can't catch me, I can do what I like. In fact, there was no wall of protection. There were no city roads. The gates were gone. Han and I used the words great distress and reproach. Definition, great adversity and shame. We're always fighting and we're shameful. Can you imagine that this was the place, Jerusalem, where God had once chosen to put his name, but it wasn't the glory of everybody anymore. It was a shame, right? This was a place of tremendous shame. And so (laughs) rather than a place of worship, it was a place for thieves and rogues. Verse 4 says, So it was... When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned 
for many days. And I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was not the first guy or the last guy to pray over Jerusalem and to weep over it, or, or, or to weep over its people. Jeremiah had done so. Jesus will do so when you get to the New Testament on the Mount of Olives. But, but Nehemiah had a tender heart. Okay, here's the deal. Lesson one, your calling is going to be individually delivered to you. It's what you're concerned about. But it gets even more clear than that. Here's lesson number two. You can often discover God's calling by what breaks your heart. So let me ask you, what breaks your heart? What, what, what causes you to grieve that other people can just kind of live with? What, what bothers you more than somebody else? Nehemiah had not been here, but he heard bad news and it broke his heart. He couldn't stop crying. <laughs> he, he was driven to his knees. He, he was so moved within. And one of the clearest signs of God's moving upon your heart is, in, is, is to ask yourself, what makes me weep? You know, Habakkuk, I should say, he will weep over the city. Daniel will. But he'd heard enough of it now, and and it drives him to his knees. You might want to write along those verses, the best vessel used to lighten the load are those who have felt the pressure themselves first. Nehemiah had the pressure. Look, there were three million Jews living in Babylon or in the capital in Susa, and one guy weeping who seemed to care while everyone else said, man, this is a great place. I'm glad I'm not in Jerusalem. And then there's the one guy whose heart God had begun to speak to individually, bringing him a concern, but now even intensifying that concern by showing him so much that it broke his heart. He has an awareness of the need, a zeal for the work. He'll serve out of love and not out of obligation. You probably know folks who in church sometimes want to go do great things for God because they figure like they should try to balance the books a little. You know, I'm going to go do something great for God. And that never works at all. But here's Nehemiah who just, he just is overwhelmed by a need that he just believes God has put on his heart. And it's driven him to his needs and it's breaking his heart. And God was going to use him, if you keep reading, to build the walls. But if, he, if he's going to build the walls, he's got to first weep over the ruins. I thank the Lord at our church for ministries that have been built upon a vision of those who've been touched by God. I've been a pastor, like I said, for a long year, a lot of years. I really believe God's called me to teach. I like it. It's a lot of study. It doesn't always show immediate fruit, but yet I can't get away from it. You know what I mean? It's just something that, that inspires me. Not everybody's called to do that. We, we have some of our young guys and we'll, we'll say, hey, why don't you come up and share out of that chapter? And they'll be terrified. Uh, they, they don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I remember not wanting to do it. And I remember when I started, I was pretty bad. I have a cassette. You remember those things? They're in the uh, museum somewhere. <laughs> of my first message I ever did. And, and I ter- had the people, honestly, home Bible study, 50 people. I had them turn to 57 verses. Turn to in their Bibles. You know how hard that is? Y'all find it out. Okay, I'm waiting. And number two. And then I said the word, you know, 123 times. You know, it's a weird practice, man. I sounded horrible, but I couldn't get away from it, even to this day. And I'm convinced in teaching that if people that listen to what I have to say that God has given to me, if they'll meet the God of the Bible, they'll love him. I I think what spurns me on to teach is I'm convinced people in the world, they don't know the God of the Bible, so they don't want to follow him. And I get that. (laughs) The God that they know, I wouldn't want to follow either. But if they meet the Jesus that we know, boy, they're going to turn, aren't they? As we did. 
That, that motivates me. That, that drives my heart. That, and, when I, and when I see people who are, are, are following, you know, these charlatans and these, these guys who hustle you for the money and all, it, it, it does break my heart. I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be. But, but I love how God works when the ministries are established upon that, that broken heart. I have a good friend who, he and his wife and three children are missionaries in Iran. They have been there 11 years. They have not been caught. They pray about whoever they talk to. They, they, they're on the sly. They're very careful. It's a difficult place to minister. Um, he called me on, on Skype at Christmas time, and he said, Hey, how you doing? Because we could barely ever talk. We can't write anything on emails. They watch stuff. And I said, I'm doing good. How are you? And he goes, I was wondering if you'd like to come out here and, 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 and visit for a couple of weeks. And I said this, exactly. Let me pray about it. No. I didn't even, that was about the biggest pause in between. No, I'm not going. And he says, why not? I said, I don't want to get killed, thrown in jail, grabbed. That's not my heart. (laughs) But it's his. He's raising his children in in a very adverse situation. He wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's his heart. We have folks from our church that go to convalescent homes every Sunday afternoon. They teach people that have been abandoned, that, that go to the bathroom in their beds and no one changes them, that the place doesn't smell good. Sometimes the people fall asleep, and that's not good for preaching, you know, when people fall asleep on you. So don't do that to me. <laughs> and yet every week these families just go. They bring their children. They bring, they bring their dogs. They, they, they bring people that, that, that love the folks. And, and, and you go with them, and unless you're called, you're going, boy, this is smelly, and they're not paying attention, and I don't seem to be getting anywhere. But, but try telling that to them. When their hearts break for the people that have been left aside. And, and, and every week you'll hear somebody getting say, oh, yeah, I got to pray with, oh, Mabel's 94. You gave her life to Jesus, you know. And they're like, this, yeah. And I'm thinking, I didn't even show up there because that doesn't smell good at all over there. But aren't you glad that those are the folks that God has called? When I was in ministry school at Costa Mesa Calvary, and, and at, <laughs> all right, I'll tell you the whole story. The ministry school was two days long. I graduated. But anyway, Pastor Chuck, one of the things he made us do was teach junior high for a month in, in, at Costa Mesa. And I, I must tell you, it's the worst job in the world. Those kids are rotten. I don't care what anybody says about them. Even if they're my children, they are rotten children at that age. They don't pay attention. They make faces. They don't care. And yet we'll have people at the church that teach junior highs that just love it. And the kids love them. I, and I say to myself, I, I, it's so thankful to see ministries that are developed upon the heart of someone who's been broken for a ministry. So, so how about you? What, are, what is the concern on your heart that God has given to you individually? No one has laid that upon you. Because the worst thing to do is for somebody to try to pass along a concern, right? You, you, that doesn't work. We, we, we in our church don't even get up ever and say in the pulpit, we have a need for a Sunday school teacher in room six. We will say there's opportunities to serve. But if you don't show up, we'll close the class. Because there's no sense me pressuring you into a place that you don't want to be to serve in a place that you're not called to be so that I can get a need met, which I have to be responsible for, and then we're all upset. And you'll last a few weeks or maybe you'll last a month and someone will get mad at you and you'll quit because you don't want to be there to begin with. I would rather you find where God wants you, and then I know that you're just going to serve with joy because it's your concern, right? And if I walk by you at church and I forget to say hello to you, you're not going to walk away. Oh, you never said hello to me. I quit because you're not doing it for me. Your heart is breaking. You're doing it for him, 
right? And then you'll, you'll, you'll last. Well, here's a young man who has a heart that God has begun to move, and it has been highlighted by the fact that God is breaking his heart. I don't know where you're called. You can be called to teach children or, or, or go to the prisons or go to the mission field. Look, you're in a good church. God has given you plenty to do and go out and do. What are you involved in? What do you want to be involved in? Go chase it down. But don't just sit. It's time you get moving. You know, the days are few, right? Teach us to number our days. The fields are white. The laborers are what? They're few. And I don't know anybody named few, so it must be all. Let's go to work. Well, his concern, individually brought by the Lord, his, his heart, broken, drives him now to move. You know, after despair should come determination, he went weeping to the Lord, totally dependent upon him. What now, Lord? What now? I, I love the fact Nehemiah doesn't come with his own ideas. He doesn't say, I'm going to go demand three years off from the king or I'm going to quit. He, he, he just comes and he says, Lord, what are we going to do? And in this little book, and it isn't that long, there are 11 specific times that, that Nehemiah stops what he's doing and just says, God, what are we going to do? He's a man of, of real prayer. If God is stirring your heart, if it's highlighted by the fact that it, it breaks your heart, you, you'll weep in the night while everybody else, you know, it doesn't care. Then pray. Begin to pray and ask God to, to work. I, I, I would say to you, consider his predicament. 700 miles away from his concern, working for an unbeliever that was a despot, because Artaxerxes II historically was a very wicked man who did a lot of wicked things. He would need lots of building materials in the Home Depot card, right? He would need protection from many enemies who lived near Jerusalem. He had to overcome the lethargy of four generations of people living in a metropolitan city that was far easier to live in than the dirt of Jerusalem. He might as well have hoped to go to Mars. But he went to the Lord. Right? Here's lesson three. If you really want to know what what God wants you to do, see what concerns you, see what makes you weep, and go ask God what to do. And I, I, I bring that up only because, you know, the challenges that stood before Nehemiah seemed insurmountable. I think I could easily have made Nehemiah's argument Yeah, that's great, bro, but that's never going to work. And here's why. But rather than looking at the difficulty, he just looks to the Lord. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of the game, but he's ultimately going to say to the Lord, just I'll do whatever you want. Right? He makes himself available. So how big is our God? You you can shrink your concerns by getting to know God, or you can let your concerns shrink God in your eyes. But... God is able to do great things. Well, here's the prayer. And the prayer is listed in a couple of verses here. Um, in fact, down to verse 11, really. But there are two sections. And, and the first part of his prayer is confession. His confession, verse 6. Please. Oh, verse 5, sorry. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great, awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. That, that's the, the deal. <laughs> Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now. I'm going to be praying day and night for the children of Israel, your servants. I want to confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments or the statutes or the ordinance which you commanded to your servants, Moses. Confession. 
Let's try to stay where Nehemiah is. Nehemiah, in his prayer, in all of his distress, admits to the Lord that the problem that he was facing was self-induced. In other words, we went into captivity because we weren't listening. And the wall is taken down because we weren't walking with you. And we've suffered all of these generations because we didn't bother to listen to you. And, and here's the interesting thing. Nehemiah is not that guy. Nehemiah is a godly man from a godly family who wants to do godly things and is ready to do whatever the Lord wants. But his first words to the Lord are, I'm part of the blame here too. Sin has caused this grief. And I like that very much because it seems to me when, when trouble comes, we have this tendency to want to immediately blame someone else rather than take responsibility for what's going on with everyone else, right? When, when Adam gets caught in his sin, what does he say to the Lord? That woman that you gave me. Right? And the woman said, that serpent over there. There's always someone to point at. And Nehemiah might very well have said, man, these Jews just won't go home. They won't give a thing. They, they just want to settle down. And, and your name, we're, we're claiming to know you, and, and they won't. But he uses the word we. And I think there's something important about that because there, there, there's something about realizing that we don't deserve God's blessing or his willingness to use us. Right? In other words, if you're going to do a work and God has put it upon your heart and your heart is breaking and you want the Lord to work, the worst attitude you can have towards God is, all right, I'm ready now. Lift, lift me up, fill me up, send me out. As if you deserve it. You don't. God doesn't need your help. You know that, right? God's not looking around here going, oh, I could use that guy or that girl. You know, he's doing fine before you showed up. And he'll be fine when you're gone. The issue is, he wants to use your life. But he wants you to know, you don't deserve to be used. We have to come empty-handed to the Lord, don't we? We can, can seek him, but this isn't a prayer of merit. This is a prayer of, I know who you are, verse 5. I know who I am. I know who we are. And we need your help. So the first part of his prayer was confession. It, it is a humility that allows him to be used. He doesn't demand. He doesn't, I'm one of the faithful few. He says, God, we're in trouble. And we, we've done this to ourselves. But there's a second part, verse 8. He appeals to God's faithfulness, which he mentioned as he began in verse 5, that God keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him. So he says to the Lord, remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses when you said, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, if you keep my commandments, if you do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. These are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your great hand. Nehemiah confesses. He comes with empty hands, but he doesn't come uninvited. I want you to look at the word remember in verse 8. And I always think it's interesting, and you'll find it a lot actually in the Bible, that people when they go to pray say to the Lord, hey, remember what you said? And I'm thinking the Lord goes, well, thanks for that. It's getting a little senile. I can't remember everything. It's a big Bible. No, God remembers, but, but, but it is said from the standpoint of reminding ourselves, Right? I've always found that a good way to pray is keep your Bible with you. You can quote stuff to the Lord. <laughs> I'm reading right here in Psalm 55. And I know that he means it. 
So Nehemiah confesses his sin in his distress, but then he comes to the Lord to depend on his faithfulness. And he said, you said if we wouldn't listen, we'd go into captivity, and we have. But you also said if we repent, you'll forgive us and you'll restore us. Hey, we're those people. We're your people. You've redeemed us. You've, you've shown your strong hand before us. What better way to pray than that? God, he looks back to God's former works as an encouragement for his present situation. Paul said it this way to the Philippians, he that has begun a good work in you will complete it. Right? He, he can look back to see what God can do presently. So, two ways of prayer. Confession, I, I come not deserving it, but being willing. But yet I come also standing upon your promises that you will bless those who seek you and look to you and, and you'll deliver us. Want God to use you? What has moved your heart? What brings you to tears? And when you pray, are you willing to say, I'm part of the problem, but I'm willing to be part of the solution? And God, here's your promises. I'd go find some Bible verses about the things that breaks your heart that you can begin to stand upon, that you can begin to carry along with you, right? I, I, I remember as a young would-be pastor that was teaching so poorly, and not that I've gotten much better, but a little better. I don't say you know nearly at all anymore, unless I'm using it as an illustration, you know. So... Um, you want to know that God has called you, right? His, he said his word would never go out void. I believe that as a teacher. He said that it would always accomplish what he sent it to do, that it would never come back to him empty, right? And, and I hang on to that. I believe that as a pastor. I, I have to believe that standing in front of you, that God's word gets to you. It's going to accomplish what he wants. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with his faithfulness and his promise. So his weeping and his mourning led him to seeking the Lord, fasting and prayer, but, but in, in terms of confession and in terms of God's faithfulness. Finally, verse 11, O Lord, I pray that you would please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant, singular, speaking of himself, prosper this day, I pray, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I was the king's cupbearer. Lesson four of knowing your willing, your calling is this. Be available to fulfill the need that you see. Make yourself available. Breaks your heart. Make yourself available. Don't call the church. Hey, X, you know what you need to do, man? Hang up the phone. <laughs> he ain't going to do it anyway. Right? Be available. Lord, hear the prayer of your servant. I want to serve you. But I'm in a really difficult spot here. I got a lifetime job eating the king's food. And if I don't die, he lives. He likes it. I, I get to eat the best food in the world to see if anyone's trying to poison the king. And, and I can't get out of this job. I am stuck where I am at, but I make myself available. Be the solution for the things that God has put on your heart. And I love the fact that when he gets done praying and things are in perspective... He, he calls the king, at the end of verse 11, this man. Now, that's not a very complimentary way to speak of someone in absolute control, but I think it's a pretty good reflection that, that Nehemiah now sees God, and, and the king is no longer big compared to the Lord of Lords. Nehemiah recognizes who God is, what causes the problem. He confesses his sin. He remembers what God has said. He asks God to fulfill them. He makes himself available, and he moves upon what breaks his heart and what has 
been, you know, been an interest to him for a long time, even though he was solitary, alone. In fact, in the first two or three chapters, you'll see Nehemiah by himself with God. God will speak to Nehemiah. God will lead Nehemiah. God will shake his tree and show him the way and point out a direction. And Nehemiah will just be him and the Lord. And by the time people get involved and he's able to share, he's finally able to say to the people, here's what God has done to get me to this point. Now follow me. And he becomes a leader based on the experience of having walked with God. Like I said, I don't know what God has called you to do, but I know he has something for you. And and I think if if you'll ask yourself the questions, what do I care about? And what could make me cry? And what will then drive me to my knees to say, Lord, I want to be a part of the solution. Then you are pretty close to knowing where you should begin to serve. I'm not saying you'll be there the rest of your life, but you'll find a place where you can serve that God is is leading you to. And and it proves itself out in Samuel's life. proves itself out in Nehemiah's life. It proves itself out time and time again in the characters of the scriptures. Now, you might, after all of this, believe that by the time you get to chapter 2, that that you would immediately read, and Nehemiah was sent forth with great joy. Not really true. In reality, and we're not going to do chapter 2, but but in reality, uh, Nehemiah begins to pray, and four months later, nothing has changed. For 120 days, he's gone to work, tasted the prime rib. (laughs) That was good. Go ahead and eat that. Drank the wine, did whatever he's supposed to for the king, prayed, fasted day and night. Isn't that what he said? I'm going to pray day and night. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to fast. I go, God, it just, it's just so concerned. Four months later, nothing has changed. And yet God has begun a work in his heart. So you may find yourself, you know, God moving you, and you, it doesn't happen tomorrow. But yet, pray. Begin to seek after what the Lord wants you to do. And I think that you, even if you have to wait by the Lord for a while for him to open a door, It'll, it'll cause your vision to clear, and it'll quiet your heart, and it'll activate your faith. And one thing that you'll find Nehemiah doing in chapter 2 is for the, those four months of silence, he, he began to make a plan. He began to write out, if the king ever says I can go and ask me what I need, I'm going to have a whole bill of sales here. And he will say to the king, when the king one day sees him upset, and he's afraid he's going to get killed because he shouldn't rain on the king's parade, why shouldn't I be unhappy? You know, the place of my parents and grandparents lies waste. And the king says, what do you want? What do you need? When will you come back? When he told him he wanted, what he wanted to do. And the queen said, you should let him go. Well, what do you need? And he went, well, here's the 12 pages I've written out. How much time are you going to need off? I don't know what he said to him. Later on in the book, you'll find out he was there for 12 years. No, if they told, I don't think he told him 12 years at the beginning. Maybe he did. But four months is is waiting, but it isn't just wasting time. It's letting God put the things together, and when he opens the door, you can go forward. It's a great book, and and, and I guess what I would hope that you guys could go home tonight with is is being able to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want for me, and if you can discover what that interest is, go get it. Go do it. You're unique, you know. Everybody's a finger, and everybody's a toe, and everybody's a, a bald spot on my head. You know what I mean? We're all, we, we all need each other. God, if God's going to get the work done, we need junior high teachers and guys, going to the, and guys going to the convalescent homes and folks hiding out in Iran. You know, we need every part of the body. I don't know what you're called to do, but go find what it is. And this church will be the better for it. And the ministry here will, 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 will be strengthened because of it. 
And you'll be unique and you'll be needed and necessary. Oh, I, I, I agree with you. God could find an easier way to do it than picking the likes of us. You know, he could make angels that could do it like clockwork. But that's not the way he works. He picked us. It's a crack up, isn't it? Look around. He picked us. You want to laugh? Look around. He picked us. Father, we thank you tonight as we sit together that we have been called by you to go out and to serve in these last days in the kingdom, to let folks know of who you are, to, to be able to declare to the world that Jesus is alive, to be able to share with men in darkness that there's light, that there's hope, that there's forgiveness, that there's mercy with you, that you have come up with a solution for our sin, that you have provided, Lord, a Savior who loves us so. And yet, Father, we find that much of the church today, especially in the West, is just parked. We're not moving. Our only interest in church is what can they do for me? I don't like the music, or I like the music. I don't like the speaker, or I like the speaker. I don't like the seats, but I like the seats. I don't like the meeting times. Oh, I've got to go somewhere else. And we never get to the point where the Lord begins to move in our hearts where we're able to say, Lord, send me, use me. May I be a part of your work and follow those things that God has put into your heart that's personal, it's individual, it comes directly from him to you. You don't have to justify it to anyone or explain it to anyone. This is what the Lord is doing in my heart. And then you just go serve him. And there'll be a place for you here. No matter what it is, I know God will make room for you because his desire is that people would be saved and that your life would bear much fruit. Herein is my Father glorified, you bear much fruit. That's what he wants for your life. Well, he wants for mine. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do next as you listen to his still, small voice. Father, we thank you for your word. May it move us even tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for having me.